So um, we've got a few songs we're going to do for you this evening. And uh, again, we're really grateful for being here. We'll start off with a song called uh, To Keep Us Safe. everybody, I'm Tim. Welcome to Emmaus Way on this Mother's Day graduation. Very lucky to be alive if you're driving around in Durham or Chapel Hill weekend. Uh, I think last night, I don't know where I was driving around, but I was cut off like by at least five out-of-state drivers. So uh, anyway, it's always kind of fun when you live in a college town. But I'm going to turn around to my buddies behind me. How are you guys doing? Are you all good? 
Oh, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. Sort of good then. Well, these guys lead us in this part of our liturgy every week. And so this is our uh, Easter response. So look on your handout and uh, these guys will lead us. job, guys. Everybody copied you this week. Got it on the first try. Fantastic. No, uh, congratulations to everyone. How many people, do we have any graduates? I know we got uh, Mr. Busman. Uh, any other graduates with us tonight? Dr. Busman to, the, to, to, to everybody. So uh, if you would, sometime tonight, just ask Josh something really complicated uh, and let him explain it to you. Even if it's your field. Uh, the, I mean, you guys, uh, you guys, Grant, when just ask some medical stuff and Josh will uh, jump right on that. He knows that now. So, uh, but congratulations, Josh. Your family's here and uh, was uh, apparently a good day yesterday. And uh, you got your funny hat. And your, your, uh, a thing that is... For some reason, call a hood, even though it does not seem to resemble any hood I've ever seen. Yeah. Good photos on Facebook. And again, we don't make a big day, deal of Mother's Day at Emmaus Way, but certainly everybody has one of those. And uh, hopefully this has been a um, good part of your celebration today as well. A um, couple quick things. One, uh, while we've got Tim Carlos here, uh, and Tim, it's fantastic to have you uh, leading us. You have a, uh, a project coming up in about a, a month. you want to give us a quick heads up on that uh, at, uh, at the Art Center? Yeah, June the 11th, Carborough Art Centre, we're going to be performing um, with uh, myself and a number of the people who are part of the regular performers here at E-Wave. We're going to be performing in its entirety uh, Bob Dylan's Slow Train Coming, uh, his album from 1979. It's going to be a really, yeah, a really good evening. Of, um, you know, a lot of people you'll already know. And uh, we come along June the 11th. I think it's a Thursday night, is that, does that sound it right? Is. It's a Thursday night, so uh, great chance to hear our artists to play here regularly, uh, doing a, a, an extended piece together. So yeah. uh, very excited about that myself. Um, also, just a quick update on Durham Can work. Um, I'm going to be heading to Baltimore for a couple of days, starting on. Um, I guess Monday night, Monday night and Tuesday, and we had talked about one of our big initiatives this year is going to be on uh, affordable housing, and so we're going to, the clergy for the CAN group is going to be uh, just looking at some projects that the the kind of our partner group in Baltimore has been able to do, which has been fantastic. They've been able to leverage the, from the city free land uh, with kind of denominational funds, things like that, and developed significant amounts of affordable housing. 
housing, like 1,000, 1,500 units, that sort of thing. Enough to kind of change the economic pattern of a neighborhood uh, where you get good grocery store, uh, that, that type of thing. So we're really excited about that. Uh, we are in conversation, and you're going to hear a lot about this, about several pieces of land here. One at the top of the hill, the, the uh, what will eventually be the former police building there, as well as, the, uh, if you remember, the... Um, the projects that were taken down off of, um, if you went to Monument of Faith, you would have seen it. It's off Fayetteville and Umstead, I think, is the that, that section there. So that's going to be one of the big things. And again, for this is a great opportunity. If you want to be involved in the work of Durham Can, uh, we're starting work teams on a variety of things, affordable housing, education. This is really one of the best times to do that. And usually myself or Dave Thiessen or Josh or others have been uh, informed in the work with that. So anyway, that's one of our partnerships and it's one of the things that we feel very strongly about. Any other announcements? Uh, SK, I was guessing you might have one for us. Yeah, so uh, May is the month of our listening sessions, as hopefully everybody knows now. There are two more uh, sessions available to folks who aren't in home groups. May 17th at 3.30, which is before church here, um, and May 20th, which is a Wednesday night at 7 p.m. at Amber McCarthy's house. And I can give you the address. If you have any questions, you can email me. Um, but hopefully some of you have started having them in your small groups, and that's underway. So Matt and Amber's like a Wednesday week and a half from now, and then next Sunday before before church here in the building. So, um, so again, uh, it's a great opportunity for us to be able to kind of envision our future together, which we're very excited about doing. Also, um, the uh, kind of pastoral search thing that we're doing is on the website as well. So if you're wanting to, to follow that, we've gotten some applications in already, I think, and uh, that work will be continuing during the summer as well. So uh, lots of good stuff. Tim, we're delighted to have you uh, leading us. Our conversation tonight is we're getting near the end of First John, but we're going to extend what we talked about last week. So we're going to talk more about the practice of love and what it, what it means to do that in community. So I look forward to that conversation with you tonight. Tim, I'll turn it back over to you, my friend. Thank you very much. Uh, so, oh, gosh, that's, that's a little there. Thank you. So uh, just before we uh, launch back into some music, um, uh, as a result of an exchange between myself and Josh uh, a few days ago when we were talking about which songs we were going to be putting together for this evening, um, I uh, mentioned this poem from uh, Rumi. Uh, if you're unaware of Rumi, he's often referred to as the, uh, the Shakespeare of the mystics, um, a poet from Af- Afghanistan, and depending on which account you read, uh, 1207, 1210, he was born. And this is um, one of my favourite poems of his. It's called Be Love's Willing Slave. Uh, Come and be love's willing slave, for love's slavery will save you. Forsake the slavery of this world and take up love's sweet service. The free, the world enslaves, but to slaves, love grants freedom. I crave release from this world like a bird from its egg. Free me from this shell that clings. As from the grave, grant me new life. O love, O quail, in the free fields of spring, wildly sing songs of joy. Thank you. And now we're going to move on with the the theme of love. And this is a John Lennon song from um, the Plastic Ono Band album. It's called Love.
Thank you. Um, that was um, that was John Lennon's love. And now we're going to play a song from um, the late Tans Van Zandt. And it's a song uh, called uh, "Be Here to Love Me," which uh, this is, I think it's been recorded by a few people. I know Emma Lou Harris used to do it a lot in concert, and Willie Nelson's recorded it. Nora Jones has done it. It's on her second album. Anyway, here it goes. Your eyes seek 
Thanks, guys. So um, this is just normally our time to give you an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that are around you. If you're around somebody that you don't know, uh, please introduce yourself and uh, uh, connect with each other for a few moments. And I'll give us a shout and then we'll jump into our conversation on First John tonight. So stand up and greet each other. So um, I want to... Uh, request your goodwill for our introduction tonight. We're going to do a little different. I'm going to give you a reading assignment. Uh, you have a handout that has a, a really short kind of three-column, one-page article by Walter Wink. And um, Walter Wink, who knows Walter Wink? Anybody kind of, uh, he's a, Andrew, who's Walter Wink? Can you, can you tell us who he is? So, um, well, I'll tell you how I know. But that's kind of not open no What I knew is that uh, in, in South Africa, in a kind of dying days of apartheid, when I was a student, um, there was a lot of division in the churches that I belonged to, and people said, well, politics and religion don't mix, which is kind of funny. You read the Bible, there's quite a lot of politics in there. Um, but it was also a lot of, you know, so what do you do? you're a Christian, what do you do um, about uh, an oppressive state? And he wrote a book called uh, Jesus Christ, Third Way, which looks at the sermon amount, talking about the passages of turning out a cheek, going the extra mile, and there's a third way. Ah, yes, giving your cloak. Somebody sues you. And he unpacked what, really, what those really meant in the culture of the time, so, for instance, going an extra mile, if the Roman soldier was only allowed to make him go one mile, then what if he showed up at the milestone and you were like, okay, I'm going to go another mile? He would be running after you, begging for his pack because um, he was going to get into deep trouble. And so that idea of this kind of very creative, nonviolent resistance was, you know, deeply influential in a lot of churches in South Africa at the time. So that's how I know him. So, yeah. Um, I don't know who the rest of the He's been one of the uh, leading voices in a progressive Christianity for a long time. The article that I have in front of me is 1994, so you would have been able to supply lots of illustrations that he probably didn't write about in 1994. Uh, I did find one great factoid that really recommended him to me as well. It's his son, Chris Wink was a founding member of the Blue Man Group. <laughs> so I thought, okay. <laughs> I already liked Walter Wink, but now uh, I've had a couple of friends who had committed their life at some point to be uh, uh, part of the Blue Man Group. In fact, one friend who's uh, uh, just got his PhD in psychology, he's like, I don't know if I'm going to finish because if I can get in Blue Man Group, I'm ditching this academic stuff. So anyway, that's a little funny factoid. But give this, uh, um, give this a quick read. Um, and I marked it, if you want to give it a, a cursory read, um, the, the, the things I bracketed were the ones that we'll probably discuss the most. But take a moment and, and peruse this. Uh, we're going to use this. We're gonna, I'm going to ask you some questions from this. But honestly, you're going to be able to answer and, and enter this dialogue both with this article or everything that we've said about First John to this point. So give it a shot. Let me start by asking a couple questions. You keep perusing uh, if, you're, if you're still reading along. Again, the brackets will be the ones that are the, kind of the most important ones. The, the middle column had more of an illustration. But let me ask you a few questions on this. I, what I liked about this article was um, 
this is just in the Christian century. Uh, this is the lectionary text for today. So it typically publishes an article or two every every week on the lectionary text. So this is one of the advantages of, of doing the lectionary is just the, the opportunity to be to have some good resources. But um, um, this, I thought, was a pretty good summary of some of the things we've said with First John. So let me start with this question. Um, what, according to this article or what we've talked about, um, is the world? It's kind of an odd term, uh, but what, what is the world uh, according to Wink or as we've said about in First John? There's been a lot of critique of, of um, the love of Christ being something different than what the world is. like we've been reading in 1 John is there's this tendency for people to think about Christianity as something that has nothing to do with the world that we live in. Flesh, bodies, issues, or like Andrew had said, politics, those things, because the term the world is used so commonly that there's this sense that, um, that Christianity might be some sort of otherworldly thing. And in fact, some of the greatest abuses of either by Christians or done to Christians have been that impulse to see it as something otherworldly. So... I'm going to take tremendous advantage of the fishbacks, but I'm going to let them know that it's going to work out in eternity for you. It's going to really be bad for 50 years, but the reward is coming at some point. And so there's been that kind of kind of otherworldliness at times with Christianity that separates it from the world that we live in. And it's been a, a source of manipulation many, many times. But what, what it, following Josh's idea is if the world is not that, it's not that with this idea that the faith that we're trying to follow or struggle with is not separate from the world, then what is the world uh, according to John or, or, or Wink's summary of it? It's a system of ideas. Josh, continue that thought. What kind of ideas might it be? Well, so like I said, it might, might create certain sort of priorities. So, for instance, you might, you might prioritize relationships based on the type of financial gain that those relationships could give you, based on the access to political power that those relationships might afford, based on the way that those relationships might make you look in public. Um, yeah. Everybody's been to a party where you were talking to somebody and their eyes weren't looking at your eyes, right? They were looking over your shoulder to who else was in the room. And we've all been part of those moments. And in fact, Wink makes this point that in John's writing, the world is a system of oppression. 
It is this, and it, we've talked about this often, that uh, the, the ancient writers and certainly the Christian writers saw the world they lived in under control of great powers. They often named those powers death, sin, evil, oppression. So Wink is describing this domination, this kind of whole domination that we live in. So let's name some of those powers using the, the, the knowledge of the life that we live in right now, the air that we breathe. What are some of the powers that dominate our lives or can dominate our lives? Money in what way? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the Bible says money answers everything. And I think um, money is the most basic form of power in the world. I don't know if that's right, but I think everything comes down to money. Well, there's been term- lots of, if you've read any kind of like, uh, psychology, sociology, those type of things. I mean, people's lives are really different based on their, their income, right? For everything from sexual partners to possibilities in their life follow a pretty strong correlation toward, toward money. Absolutely. So the, the, one, one of those powers is exchange. It is to look at people, look at things based on what you can exchange them for. So that might be that we would, again, look to this section here and say, you know, Matt's exchange value is X, right? And Joel's exchange value is X plus 10. So in some way, given that way of thinking, that Joel's looking pretty good right now. Uh, so, so that's one way. That's a power in our world. What, what are other powers in the world that we live in that John might call, if you're writing now, the world? Yes, okay. Privilege based on uh, race, gender, socioeconomic status. So when I walk into a room, maybe people would pay more or less attention to me because of the way I look or you know, uh, where I come from or what my name is. Or... Sure. I mean, and we are seeing that very, I mean, just to use an easy example, Skin color matters in our society based on everything from policing to um, what you can buy, where you can be, where you can stand, where you can be. There. I mean, so that race is a power. Uh, privilege is a power. Socioeconomics is a power. These are things that do affect in a very real sense. And I think this is what's been so hard for, um, for America this year is that Ferguson and Baltimore and North Charleston and places like that have reminded us that race still operates, that, that there is something in our world that gives permission or denies permission based on race and based on income and a whole million things. Gender matters as well. And there are all forms of privilege. Those are powers that you can't say, um, I am going to, I am not going to be affected today by my gender, my race, my sexual orientation. Today will be my day not to be impacted by those things uh, because you can make that choice, but the world is making a different set of choices about you positively or negatively based on those things. Absolutely. What are other powers? Well, 
Holmes said that some other powers are, are the stories that are of important generally in our society. And so it's too easy to collapse and just to money. So Silicon Valley has a lot of money, but what's really important in Silicon Valley is the story it tells itself that it's creating the future and inventing the future. It's not just about money, it's that that story has a, a power to shape how people's values are. So a lot of people go to Silicon Valley and don't make any money at all. They work their backs off and they, yeah, they sort of fail and they leave in debt. But the story that, is, that tells itself is about the future. And in fact, all of Western culture, ever since the Victorians, has been telling itself stories about progress, moral progress. We, we claim that our society has morally progressed compared to 200 years ago. I'm not entirely sure that's true. Um, I mean, certain victories have been won, but it's not clear that they haven't been defeated either. But that story of progress is an immensely powerful power in, in, in all Western cultures. And not just Western cultures, it's just of the story of China, um, that we're progressing towards something. And it has something that's borrowed, something of the, what you were saying, that Christianity said, said, okay, it's okay if you have your life sucks now to be rewarded in heaven. There's, there's a lot of that being borrowed by the story saying, well, it's okay if life sucks for some people now, as long as we get progress and everything's okay, you know, for the next generation or down the line. <clears throat> So that, I'd say that story is about. You know, and again, I throw this out. This is in the research that I do. These are two stories that we talk about. I'm not assuming everybody would agree with this, but there are two stories that we talk about that dominate our side. One is progress, the assumption that it's always moving towards something better. And the other is meritocracy, that people who are ahead have gotten there because they're better. Um, it, it, you know, writ large, you know, the, the success is related to people who are more skilled, more gifted, all of those things. And so it gives explanatory power. If things have gone poorly in their life, then we might suspect that in some way, I don't know, there's some flaw in will that, that, that may explain something. Uh, so those, are, those stories definitely have power. Now, you guys know I've been researching uh, Moral Mondays. Here's a, a stat that, that talks about following up SK's point is that um, people without health care uh, who are typically usually have lower socioeconomic status, right, die more commonly than people who don't. Uh, the, the statistic that has been used um, in, um, in Moral Mondays has been about 2,000 people died last year that would have uh, not died had they had Medicaid. Uh, so that outside of health care, they were at a greater risk. So these things like it's not just privilege, but it's also uh, what we have impacts the quality of our lives. And some lives are deemed more important than others, right? Any other powers that come to your mind? Sure. And the world has often worked around somebody who has either in their body or in their possession the tools to oppress other people by violence or by fear. Now, what did, and this is where the Bible starts getting a little crazy sometimes, what did Jesus claim? Uh, we see this all over John in 1 John. What did Jesus claim about the powers in terms of his life? They've been defeated. And, and, and I mean, he basically says that these powers, and how were they defeated? In the story of John, they were defeated by 
by a non-violent, well, a violent death, but a non-violent action by Jesus of giving up life. So Jesus has a pretty complicated answer to this. He says that in my life, death, and resurrection, this is a symbol that these powers no longer have to dominate the world that you live in. And if you follow my example, then you are invited into this, when he talks about kingdom, is, is a world away. It's a, the other world is here from this article is about the kingdom of God, that there is an entirely different way of living. And Jesus believed that he inaugurated that. He didn't say, hey, it would be a neat idea. He actually believes that he inaugurated that different way of living and in fact, I think we struggle to read that. Jesus' contemporaries got the point pretty clearly. It's one of the reasons they killed him. As we say here often that Jesus was perceived as undermining the well-being of society. In other words, the way it worked, Jesus seemed to say it could work a different way. And everybody who had interest in the way it worked felt like he might need to go. So Jesus makes the claim that he has defeated the powers. And what is he inviting us into? If, if, if Jesus has, has created this defeat, what has he invited us to do? Why does it matter what we do? We, he, he is, in some ways, he feels like he's offered a choice to step into a different realm of living. He also seems to imply that our building that other realm of living is absolutely significant. He never seems to imply that it will be done. He seems to say, I've made way for it, but it will only be done if you participate in it. Now, when Jesus talks about the other realm, is it something in the future or is it something now? Yes. <laughs> sure. And why? But it's, it's both. I mean, it's something that this is something we talk a lot here about, the, the sort of the already and the not yet. Like, this is something that is breaking in, that we can participate in, but it hasn't come in the way that we might always hope that it has come. Sure. And there's uh, rife in the, the scriptures are this tension of already, not yet. If you read one of my favorite letters in the New Testament is First uh, is Peter. And it talks about this notion of salvation... It's something that's happening immediately. It's visible. It's real. It's touchable. It's in the world that we are. And then he shifts without even a decent transition to it being future. And you're like, wait a minute. We were talking about it being present, and now we're talking about it being future. In fact, when I was um, talking about my manipulation of the fishbacks, uh, one of the things that was my secret plan was to always think of the work of God as something future so that it doesn't need to be reflected in the world that we live in today. can manipulate now because the reward is coming, but the New Testament struggles with that, as Josh says, because it always seems to present that this other realm of possibility, this other way of living is present to us now. Now with its impacts now and present to us in the future with its impact in the future. So we're being told that in some ways we are not an audience that votes for God, um, but that our participation actually matters in the world that we live in. We are, uh, we're actually creating this other world, this other realm, or what Jesus said is the kingdom of heaven in the world that we live in now. So how do we participate? Uh, this, from this article or 1 John, what does it look like to participate in the other world that God has created? I'm not sure that this is from the article on 
one first shot, but I feel like Jesus had a reliance on the supernatural power of God. Mm-hmm. And he, because of his supernatural connection with God, he was able to provide for people like feeding the 5,000, using seven fishes and five loaves. And uh, because of God's supernatural power, he didn't need to rely on worldly power. So I wonder if through faith, I mean, I've struggled a lot with like, how do I access God's supernatural power? How do I make sure that God's going to come through for me? And I don't really know, but I still feel like it's important. Yeah, that connection between Jesus and God is one that he talks about a lot, especially in John's gospel. He constantly talks about his connection to the Father. Absolutely. What are other ways that we join in? What do we do? John makes this really simple, perhaps maddeningly simple. We love. Uh, that, And to some degree, the, the greatest abstraction, the smallest, simple statement of how we participate in the other realm is through love. Uh, John makes it very clear that we are not about just believing in God, but literally we participate in the work of God and we participate by love. In fact, John would seem to be very content with, I'm not even sure you have to believe in God to love as long as you're participating in the agenda of what God is doing because he makes it that simple. It's through love. And actually in John's gospel, he characterizes that relationship with his father as an intimate love that is the model for all of our loving relationships. So we do it through love. Love is the way that we participate in this other realm. Love is the, and and it's so easy. Because how many, tonight we could go home and we could just overdose. We could freebase Lifetime movies on love. And they would all be, I mean, you know, you would, I mean, you know what those movies would do. It makes love seem incredibly trite. But for John, it's this incredibly thick, vigorous, rich concept of the way that we participate in the work of God is through a love that goes beyond the simple boundaries that sometimes we put around love. Now, Josh said something really good last week that I want to reiterate is when he did the communion invitation, we last week did relational meetings uh, as a part of just our life together. We gathered in groups of two or three and we listened to each other's stories. We basically just said, who are you and where do you come from and what matters to you? And Josh made the point that that is often a starting point for love, but love is more than that. You could listen to somebody's story, you could hear somebody's story, and you could use it against them. Love is more than just, just listening and knowing, but, um, but that you have to start somewhere. Now, you may not have gotten this far in the article, but one of the points the article makes is similar to what we did last week, is that a starting place for love is not only listening, but becoming aware of the world that we live in, to see the world that we live in as a power rather than just the norm. Uh, Because if we can see it as a power, then we can begin to imagine different ways of doing things. One of the things, for example, that we've done as a part of our worship very often, once every three, four, five, six months, is we've done those determinant stations, right? Where we've taken hate messages or or, uh, all types of common speech in our society and we've defaced that common speech and created new messages out of that. That is an act of awareness, of understanding 
that when you read an ad, when you read a magazine that relates to sports or politics or all sorts of things, it's chock full of assumptions that we might look and say, those assumptions are based on a set of assumptions that would not fit in this other realm that Jesus has formed in our world. So this is one of the things that we do, is that we try to see the powers that are in the world. We try to listen to each other's stories so that we truly become human to each other. But what are some of the next steps? If we're trying to fashion as people, as a community, as a part of a larger community that are associated with God's work, um, if we're trying to love in the way that is as vigorous as being described in 1 John, what is the next steps beyond just listening and being aware of the powers that we struggle against? What are next steps? Think about, I'll throw some exclusions out there. It's easy to love somebody, right, if you have an interest in them, their life. I mean, if, if, it, if it pays off to love somebody, we're usually all pretty good at that, right? If you can suck up your boss well enough or your advisor and it pays, you know, that's, we, we're good at that, right? Self-interest, we can do it. It's easy to love somebody that we are close to. We've connected our life to and friendship and love and partnership, all of those things. It's really hard to love people who oppose us or are difficult to us or have needs that are different from ours. So how do we take that next? What does that look like to love outside of our own self-interest? I think you mentioned this last week, but uh, the now concept of hospitality. Not in like this hosting way, but um, inviting someone into your space so closely that your quote-unquote possessions or your powers are no longer your own, and that it's indistinguishable whose it is when you invite someone close to you, which is really scary. Whenever, <laughs> um, just because they're in that, you lose all sense of assurance that you are able to leave that space with what you came in with. So it's like you just like give yourself essentially into where everything's shared between that person. Yeah, hospitality is an incredibly dangerous thing to do because once you connect with someone, you just can't turn it off, right? I have a friend who came into our program at Carolina who would have admittedly said, I don't have a whole strong sense of social justice. And he's been around people who work for those things all the time. And he said to me the other day, he said, okay, now I'm in trouble. I can't turn this stuff off. I mean, I cannot look at people that I would have normally excluded or not cared about and let myself off anyway with that. Hospitality is dangerous. In fact, um, my, our friend Ellen says this in text group every week. She said, you guys need to tell us like a, a list of texts that we should read. And one of the, you guys know, if I were going to pick two on that list, one would be Henry Nouwen's Reaching Out. Because it's an old book in the 70s that he, where he talks about hospitality. And he essentially frames it as one of the most courageous acts to truly receive other people 
And let them, as he says, sing their own songs and dance their own dances in the presence of your life. And I think that in itself is, a, is the type of love that John is talking about. And we could talk for days on what would it look like to be hospitable and what are the things that we're not hospitable to. Absolutely. What are other ways that we live out the kind of love that John or the article I threw your way is saying? Remember, we're loving against powers that are not invested in that kind of love. That's why hospitality is dangerous. Because it may shake up the world that you live in by receiving other people. I, I, don't, I don't know if anybody else saw the, uh, the headline um, on Tony Shea, the, Zappo, the Zappos CEO's new initiative to um, eliminate all management within his company. Um, and so he made that announcement and, and 14% of his employees quit the next day. Um, so like maybe maybe a really good idea, maybe not. Um, it's called holacracy. I, I know nothing about it, but um, it seems kind of apropos the conversation. Because as Luke points out, if I'm following you correctly, the world works a little easier with hierarchies, right? I mean, when you know where you fit, Everybody comes into a room, and you want to get a sense of like who are the like who are the people that you can talk to, who are the people that you defer to, and when you start breaking down those natural boundaries, things get dangerous, don't they? And that's one of our challenges as a, a community that we we live in hierarchies all the time. You could list hierarchies of your neighborhood of your community, social groups, universities, uh, all of those things. And then we come into this space and we try to do communion in a way that there are no hierarchies. And there's always tension, right? Because we're trying to do something for not just 90 minutes, but it works against the way life is typically organized. I think that's a really good point. What was Wink committed to as a, a way of, of resisting? So it wasn't just non-violence, it was creative non-violence. Part of the way people sometimes use non-violence is that it would just be those uh, who don't oppose government, who don't oppose violence. And that wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about confronting the powers, and people involved in the powers, with their complicity in the system, uh, confronting them with their, their own violence. Instead of just saying, okay, well, as Christians, we're going to, let's say, pay the government. It's like, well, how do you, how do you put a twist on it? So that you're, you're, you're putting yourself in a position where they're wondering, why are you doing this? At the same time, they're having to kind of confront their own part of it. Yeah, he, he understood nonviolence as more than just some passive, hit me again. But it involved creativity, cleverness, and personal vulnerable risks that go beyond that. I, you guys remember when Dan and I were really involved with the 10% is enough campaign and we were you know, marching with a lot of clergy in Charlotte uh, at Wells Fargo and Bank of America, uh, really challenging them on a couple of things. And one of the big challenges was that they were not fulfilling the law in terms of the amount of interest that they were charging veterans and active duty military. Uh, we were calling for a return to a 10% cap on that. But part of the nonviolence resistance to that was that, that they wanted to bar us 
from their lobbies, but the people that went to the banks were customers. And so he's like, well, wait a minute, I have an ATM card. Why can't I get in here? And at one point, I think the plan was in one of the banks, uh, people went to the counters and deposited money. But you know what kind of money they deposited, right? Sacks and sacks of pennies. <laughs> I mean, you know, because this is permittable, right? We're customers and we're depositing money and this is how it works. But that was the kind of cleverness that I think Wink had in mind. And so one of the things that has been lost at times, and I think the Christian vocabulary, and I'm going to make sure I qualify this, the white Christian vocabulary, and not everybody in this room is not white, but the white Christian vocabulary is largely framed in privilege, Right? Things tend to work our way, and, and when you add white male to it, then, you know, things tend to work our way a lot. And so acts of love are rarely framed as acts of resistance. Why would we resist a world that we win at all the time? Uh, and so to some degree, this is what's hard for us in reading First John, is the powers don't seem that dangerous, that to, to a lot of people who are framing the conversation, but to John the ancients, and for many who live in our world, those powers threaten their life in every way. And so the act of loving and participating in community might challenge us to actually oppose something and see that as an act of faith. Um, Henry Nowen and others, the, the, the piece that I read from SK last week, they talked about love not as something simple that one does, but now one talked about it as a conversion. He says that we are essentially framed in the powers that we live in to live in hostility with people who are around us. And we actually have to be converted to hospitality. We actually have to be converted to that. Um, here, one of the things that we talked about last week, and I think we're going to struggle with this, but we're going to try to do this this summer, and we'd love for you to struggle with us doing this. Is you know every year we try to frame a summer series that gives us a, a different kind of conversation area. So Josh and Ellen and Mark and I were sitting together, and we said, you know, based on what we're reading here, what if we committed the whole summer to only read scholars, commentators, theologians, artists, activists who are not white males. So that's the plan is to take 12 to 14 weeks of non-white males. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? I mean, we should probably post that on Facebook, you know, and I mean, that actually could be part of our marketing plan, right? Uh, but what's going to be hard about that if we do this? Who's sitting on the stool, right? I mean, inevitably, just out of sheer economics, unless we expand the honorarium budget, we're going to have a couple weeks where I'm sitting here talking about a female theologian, right? We're going to be stuck with that. We'll warn you in advance. Um, what else will be hard? Mark, what will be hard musically? Yeah, I was thinking of how, we talked about this the other day, but I was thinking of how we do a fair number of songs that have female writers, but we don't do very many songs that have writers from people of color. Um, and, even, and even when we do songs that are you know, female writers, if Skylar's here singing, it's one thing, but most of the time it's a male that's leading the music, um, just trying to come up with enough material that we can do on a week-to-week -week basis. There are certain areas that my, either my skill set as a musician is deficient or my musical knowledge of a body of material might be deficient. Um, 
you know, the, the material that we choose on a week-to-week basis is limited by the people who choose it. Right. Mark is not saying the material is not out there. Right. He's saying the people who choose it make it sometimes inaccessible to us. And so one of the things we're going to try to do is do, what did we say, half of all the music that we do from uh, female songwriters or people of color. or And it won't be that easy based on our positionality. We think it'll be a struggle to do that. Anything else that might be hard about it? We might not resonate with it because it's a foreign vocabulary and language to us. Yeah, because loving is more than just saying, those people are different. They're kind of neat. <laughs> as long as we just deal with them every now and then. You know, and, and maybe we'll get to July and we'll think, oh my God, if I hear another feminist theologian, I'm going to throw it. You know, some of you will think, my God, I've been waiting for my whole life to hear a feminist theologian, right? And other people might say, they keep talking about the same stuff. I'm bored with race. We did four weeks on race. Haven't we covered it? You know, and, and, and for people of privilege, it's easy to say, okay, we get it. We get it. Uh, uh, but do we have to keep talking about it? And to some degree, what John is telling us is we have to keep talking about it. We have to keep struggling about that. Um, Brandon studies you know, non-Northwestern religion. And there's to some degree the whole religious world that we've had has been framed by white, usually males in North America, Europe, and otherwise. These are the people we read a lot of. And where's Walter Wing from? And, you know, now he certainly took some incredible risks. So that's one of the things that we want to struggle with this summer is to put ourselves in a position where it will be hard for us. And it might not, as Mimi said, be that attractive uh, to you guys. Um, so one of the things that, that I think is important, I wanted to kind of close with this quick thought is a lot of things that we're trying to do as a community, poorly or well, are a recognition that the kind of love that we've been invited to participate in is never a complete project. It's never, we never reach a point where we say we've got it figured out. We never reach a point where we feel incredibly secure in our ability. We always find another risk. There's always another possibility. We understand, and I think the way Nowen framed it, Sean, you can correct me on this, that the kind of conversion from hostility to hospitality was not a one-time conversion. We're constantly converting to that. We're constantly converting in different realms in our life. We're constantly struggling. Or as SK said, there's that tendency last week between bracing ourselves from other people or receiving them. And we're constantly finding ourselves bracing ourselves against other people. So we need this type of conversion. One of the things I think that we've done as a community that I, and I, I am completely honored that you let us do with our partnership with Durham Can, uh, with work with Moral Mondays, um, these are things that are pretty far outside the vocabulary of, of, of Christian life for a lot of people. When we go to Durham Can events, um, it's, it's one of the great pleasures of it is it's always a non-white majority. Uh, why do you think people don't want to be a part of that? Josh, what would you say would be the biggest objection for why are there really only about, actually there's three or four new ones, but at one point there were only like three white churches that were a part of that. Why would, what would be the problem? Well, I think if nothing else it takes, you, you have to start 
sort of taking a long, hard look at yourself and your complicity within a system in which you occupy a privileged position uh, to be a person uh, to be a person of privilege within a system to ally oneself with pe to people without privilege. It takes a great deal of critical self-reflection. Sure, and also the conversation is not always polite. Right? We've been trained, many of us, in politeness. There's a way to talk to the police chief. There's a way to talk to the mayor. There's a way to talk to people. And, and one of the reasons there's a way to talk to those people is they might be our neighbors. You know, we might be talking about leaf blowers tomorrow uh, in a policy today in this meeting. And so this idea that you might struggle, resist, and contend with others in the name of love has in many ways completely disappeared at times out of Christianity. Now, when we read the ancients, they understood that clearly. They were a slave religion. They never won. But for us, we've lived in a world that's been framed around our assumptions, even to the point that if someone declares themselves in some places not a Christian, we think, hey, they might be suspect because they don't seem to fit around this place the way we think that they should fit. So, again, this is one of the things I think is a great privilege of Emmaus Way is that we as a community, not because we're doing it well, have found the freedom to kind of step into this. And I would say as kind of a last word, one of the things I'm really excited about our listening sessions that we've been doing now is the real reality that part of us is we're imagining how could we love more? How could we love better? Where are places that we need to stretch ourselves? And, and we can't do all, everything at one time, but it's exciting to imagine that with you guys. Next week, what we're going to do is we're going to wrap up this whole idea of sin, Christ, and love as framed in 1 John. We'll look at, at uh, kind of the theological dispute that drove the writing of this letter. It was a big one, and we'll try to frame that in our own culture today. But it's been fun to think about those things. I would definitely encourage you to give this a read again and to consider how does that shape the way that we love each other. Tim, you guys are going to lead us in confession and absolution uh, tonight. And again, uh, one of the easy, Josh, I'll take this from, from your lips, one of the easy confessions for us as a community is to realize that many times... Um, we have sat in a position of complicity or privilege, and therefore the challenge for us is how do we identify with people who don't have the experiences that we experience? How can we truly love without that being some sort of uh, condescending or tokenistic type of love? So, yeah, thank you. Once again, we've got a couple of songs to, uh, to close this evening's proceedings. Uh, first off, a song that uh, some of you might uh, remember from previous weeks. Uh, from John Martin from the Solid Air album. It's called um, I Don't Want to Know. Once again.
So one 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 left to go. Uh, as ever, uh, for fear of repeating myself, I'm very grateful uh, to be asked back here uh, and to get to play with Casey Tull. Whitwright. If, you, if this is your first time of encountering Whitwright, he's an extraordinary musician who's uh, part of uh, a, a very hardworking man, uh, American aquarium who've done uh, is it in excess of 70 shows already this year? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. They've got a new album out at the moment, Wolves, which uh, you, you might want to check out. So anyway, um, last song was from uh, Van Morrison. It's called Warm Love. And thanks again. Look at the ivy on the old clinging wall. Look at the flowers and the green grass so tall It's 
not a matter of when push comes to shove It's in the hour on the winds of Dressed up in lace I dig it when you've got a smile on your face This inspiration's got to be on the flow This invitation's got to be in the flow
One of the things I was thinking about as we were talking tonight, and I've been thinking about a lot during um, uh, this whole First John series, is uh, um, a passage from one of my favorite writers and one that we talk about uh, quite a bit here, Terry Eagleton. So uh, he's a, a sort of Anglo-Irish writer. He wrote a book a couple of years ago called Reason, Faith, and Revolution that is magnificent. I have a copy that I'm happy to loan you if you're interested. But one of the things that he says is that essentially his definition of the gospel is a belief that love is the ordering principle of the universe despite all the evidence to the contrary. Despite the fact that we look, when we look at the way the world actually seems to work, when we look at Baltimore, when we look at Ferguson, when we look at North Charleston, it doesn't seem to be the case that love is the ordering principle, and the gospel tells us that it is. And one of the things that this reconfigures uh, for Eagleton is what it might mean to be a believer, that what it means to believe is not to say something like, I believe, uh, uh, the, the statement I believe in God is not to say something like, I believe in UFOs, or I believe in the Yeti, that I believe that those things are out there somewhere. But it's much more akin to saying something like, I believe in you. It's an investment that I make. And what that means, if belief and love are tied together, is that belief becomes at once sort of more precarious. When I say that I love someone, I have to be willing to reckon with the fact that I can enumerate all the ways and reasons that I love that person, and yet someone else might not love that person the same way that I do. But at the same time, it also becomes something that is so much more fulfilling and complicated and life-giving than a simple on or off switch. This is not a question of in or out. It's not a question of on or off. It's a question of being invited into a way of looking at the world and a way of relating to each other that is life-giving and that is countercultural in a really important way. One of the ways that we do that every week here at Emmaus Way is by breaking bread for each other, uh, pouring wine and juice for each other and saying, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Here at Emmaus Way, we celebrate an open table, which means all of you are welcome to come to break bread, to pour wine and juice for one another and to invite each other into this countercultural reality that says that no matter what the world looks like, at the root, love is what's in charge. Welcome to the table. <laughs>